Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Fem Geniuses podcast series as part of the Colorado College course Hidden Spaces, Hidden Narratives Intersectionality Studies in Berlin. My name is Anna Wormuth, and I am an organismal biology and ecology major from St. Louis, Missouri, entering my senior year at CC. The organization I will be featuring in this podcast is called the Romani Pen Archive, a feminist space for documenting and preserving the works of Roma and Sinti individuals throughout the world. Many people don't know about the genocide of Roma people in Europe, also called the Parimus, which occurred alongside the mass murder of Jews during the Holocaust. In fact, the German government did not acknowledge the extermination of approximately 1.5 million Romani individuals and the trauma that it caused their community until 1982. Then in 2012, after much organizing, a memorial to Roma and Sinti victims was constructed here in Berlin, which we went to see after our visit to the archive. Coming into this assignment with very limited knowledge of Romania history, persecution, and resistance, I expected to learn a great deal about the complexities of this hidden narrative and how it affects Roma communities today. I was also excited, as someone who works in the library archives at Colorado College, to see what kinds of media the Romani Pen Archive is documenting in their process of preserving Romani history and knowledge. Now, in the spirit of storytelling that is so important to Romania traditions, here is Isadora Rangelovich, scholar and archive co-founder, telling us the story of a Romani woman who we noticed in a black and white photo sitting on the bookshelf. Nancy Makosta was a really very, very nice woman. I mean, was, we hope she's still alive. She's very old and lives in Poland. And two years ago, she was still alive, but she's an old woman. Um, and she um, survived also the genocide, uh, genocide in Poland, but she was about um, 13 years old when the uh, Germans came to Poland. And I don't know if you know, it was a very quick and very um, bloody war, because in a very quick time, they destroyed the people and they were like coming with the army. But inside, they had also such Einheiten units such units who were uh, doing mass killings, mm -hmm. like they shoot all the people they uh, yes. And um, she uh, was uh, uh, going outside of the place where they lived, and when she came back, her whole family, about 80 people were shot. They killed them all. And the woman saved her because a neighbor who knew that the Nazis were at their camp. And then she was all alone by herself mm. as a young girl, young girl and she was um, later caught mm. by the Nazis, caught, caught by the Nazis. And then mm. uh, she went to the places where this mass shooting were. She was in the Lager. Lager is Lager, no? Um, and the it was not the concentration camp, not the death camp, but the working camp. Oh, uh, yeah, when It's yeah. like, and they have to build railroads. Wow. And on this railroads, and yes, <laughs> and on this railroads, then it was uh, the train to Auschwitz. And then uh, one day, one woman gave her her child. 
and she to save the child, yeah. save the child from the it was Out a train to Auschwitz, yeah. and she, they knew what will happen yeah. because they were yeah. in Poland, yeah. and you know yeah. how it was in right. the Netherlands. And then she saved this one child, and then she started to take the child from uh, children yeah. from the train. From other people. Yes, yeah. from other people. Yeah. And then at least, <coughs> and she also went to places where the mass shootings mm -hmm. were, and she took uh, survived children. children because parents often, when they were killed, they tried um, to protect. And however, she saved more than 50 children oh. at the end. Yeah. And, she adopted, and she was. She adopted them, right? Yes, she brought them uh, at home and then she got some food and then she gave them uh, to other parents because she was also in the camp and yeah. in this uh, lager, you know. Building so she had, uh, and I think it was also the image of Roma with a lot of uh, children. They never realized that these mm -hmm. children weren't her children. Mm -hmm. And then nobody kn uh, knew about this story. And many years later, she was almost 80 years old. Pano, a boy uh, who she saved, started to find other children, mm -hmm. she also saved. Mm -hmm. And then they wrote a letter to Kaczynski, uh, uh, Lech, Lech Kaczynski, the president, mm -hmm. and then um, they have done a research mm -hmm. and looked and so on, and then she got uh, a medal. She was then no. famous for 80 years. Oh, eight years yeah. Yeah. Yes, and this is wow. her story. It's yeah. Really, yeah. She's a really hero. Yeah. yeah. The way the story contributed to my learning, other than being an incredibly beautiful piece of history, is that it showed me exactly how the archive is using their space to communicate the lost narratives of the Paramus and other events that took place for the Romani community during World War II. So not only did they have books on their shelves, but also this photo, which prompted the question from our professor, the brilliant Heidi Lewis, about who the woman in the photo was. I can only imagine that other visitors to the archive, kids, youth, and adults alike, would have the same question and would then be exposed to that story. Isadora also told us about how the production of knowledge within the Roma community is extremely important when one witnesses the quantity of scholars who are not Roma yet want to visit the archive or look for similar references so that they can write about Roma people academically. Therefore, I think Isadora's storytelling proved exactly to us how important it is for Roma people to tell their own narratives and share them with other people. It fosters a sense of sovereignty and community autonomy and even restoration of harms that have been done. I also think it is significant that this photo was placed in the main room of the archive considering that the Romani Pen organization considers itself first and foremost feminist and wants to include first and foremost Romani identifying women because their voices are often even more stifled than Romani men's because of patriarchal power structures. Therefore, as an intersectional organization, their goal is to uplift those who are in more marginalized positions. This includes queer folks and folks with disabilities, as well as asylum seekers and children. Within this context, it's important for the Romani Pen organization to be producers of knowledge, which comes back to the storytelling. Isadora and her colleague Tayo expressed to us their frustrations regarding the use of knowledge about Romani people 
for racist persecution rather than empowerment, and we can see this throughout history. Nevertheless, both of them have been involved in academia and are able to critique it from the inside as well as outside of their profession and see its flaws. This conversation added further nuance to my thinking about the role that academia can play in social movements and anti-oppression work and the ways in which it's limited. I was really thankful in the end that Heidi asked about the photo because we were able to hear from Isadora a very touching and rather personal story about a real-life person who experienced very real and visceral structural racism and resisted. It would be impossible to write an academic paper about this woman today because there are simply not enough resources from this time period. Of course, that was the main goal of the National Socialist regime, to exterminate entire cultures and Germanize Europe. Therefore, storytelling becomes an increasingly important cultural weapon against extermination and genocide. Speaking of resistance, I will now turn to Tayo Awasusi Onutur, who is responsible for public relations at the Archive, as she expresses to us how she has resisted the use of racialized language against Roma and Sinti people like herself. This uh, word, um, antigonist, was in German. If you translate it to English, it's anti-Gypsism. Um, and like, uh, we, for instance, or other, also other people, uh, we don't want to use that word, mm -hmm. antigonist, because it already has a racist mm -hmm. word in, in it, in it mm -hmm. and makes it somehow, uh, um, like, somehow okay, because, you know, it's like a academic uh, right, right. term. And but, it's, but it's not. It's still a racist word. And yeah. if you use that word, uh, anti-Gypsyism, anti um, uh, this is also something that uh, Isidora um, uh, saw at, uh, when she's teaching that people are easier to use the racial uh, term. Oh right, if they hear because that. Because somehow you know you already used the other right. word, so um, it's okay to say you know the racial word because you just you know read it in the book or so and so said this and this you know. And it's easier to to um, to to say it, and uh, but it's a racial word, and you know it's it's, and it's this is really something that I was also trying to um, show with this movie, the documentary that I did, mm -hmm. that um, uh, it's not okay to use that word, you know. It's I would always um, compare it to the N word because everybody knows that you it's not okay to use the N word, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with the racial term for Cindy and Roma. And, um, but it's really hard for people to, in Germany, and I think I can even say in uh, Europe and throughout, you know, in the network throughout the world to, um, to accept that. Uh, in Germany, for instance, very, uh, something very basic. You can go to a German supermarket, you will find different items, food, uh, with the racial term. It's still out there. Everybody can sell it, you know, of course there have been activists that try to, you know, do yeah. protests and yeah, yeah. collect um, uh, signatures mm -hmm. and stuff like this and write letters every day. And probably one day, I hope I will still get to see this, mm -hmm. it will somehow have an effect. But today, you can go to any supermarket, you still find these products with that term. And this term was used to kill, destroy all these people during the Holocaust. You know, and it's still okay. And if we work together with people, it doesn't matter what kind of levels 
Mm. No matter what it is, like if I show the movie or we are in a workshop mm. or you work, you know, it doesn't matter where you come together with people, there will always be somebody asking, well, is it not okay to say the word so-and-so? You know, it's, it's really like part of the language, part of the German language, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's been taught from generation to generation, and they just feel like that's the word. Many people don't know that's actually Sinti mm -hmm. Roma, mm -hmm. that this is, the, this is uh, what we call ourselves. Many really don't know. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know it, okay. You know, nobody can blame you. But once you tell somebody, okay, listen, this is not the word. Um, you know, I guess you didn't know it, now I tell you this. We are called Sinti and Roma, and not the racial term. And they say, oh, okay, but then they keep on using it. Right. Before I share my thoughts on what Taya just said, I think it will help to go back a little bit and summarize. The word gypsy has been used to generalize and target Roma communities for centuries, stigmatizing their culture and lifestyle, while simultaneously invoking the image of a thief and societal reject, or a romanticized exotic figure. Anti-gypsyism, therefore, is a term which specifies that exact racist ideology of hatred and intolerance towards Roma people. However, unlike the term anti-blackness, for example, anti-gypsyism contains the precise racist word used against Romani people, and perhaps most importantly, under Nazism. Scholar Dimitrina Petrova, who chronicles this legacy of discrimination in her essay, The Roma Between a Myth and the Future, writes that the Paraimas was undoubtedly the greatest catastrophe in the history of this people, and the derogatory word gypsy was an instrumental profiling tool in the process of committing genocide. Now it's crucial to realize that this is not a thing of the past, nor is it unique to the Roma and Sinti communities. Just like many other people of color, the number one struggle that the Romani face today is racial profiling. Police, schools, and other institutions use profiling to target and discriminate against Roma individuals, which is reflected in the rate of arrests and even segregated primary school classes within Roma and Sinti populations across Europe. Thus, as we heard Tayo express, when a Roma individual sees this racist word on a product at the grocery store, hears it in a song or in a movie, or even reads it in an academic article meant to criticize anti-Roma ideologies, the term actually circulates both covertly and explicitly in the consciousness of the public, and its oppressive function is maintained by those who don't know its meaning and impact. This topic led our group to think about a parallel discussion regarding the use of the N-word in Black communities. I don't have time to play the clip here, but Professor Lewis spoke about her view on the topic, which is that the debate will always and should always remain within the Black community because it is up to Black folks to decide what words they will or won't use to refer to themselves and each other. A classmate asked if the word gypsy has been reclaimed by young Roma individuals in a similar fashion, and Tayo said yes, especially in hip-hop. This shows that there will always be differing opinions regarding language within communities, yet it is up to people who identify with those communities to choose the language that is most empowering for them. Knowing all of this, I even feel uncomfortable using the term myself, as I just have in this segment. In this situation, I see it as a way to clarify and reflect on what I learned from this visit, but isn't that what scholars also use it for? Wouldn't it be better for non-Romani persons to rid it of their vocabulary altogether?
While we let that question stew for a while, I will now transition to the discussion between myself and two fellow femme geniuses. I apologize in advance for the background noise and other technical difficulties, but if you listen closely, you can hear us. Okay, so for the discussion portion, I am here with two of my classmates that I will let introduce themselves. Hi there, um, my name is Noah Schuster. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a rising senior and a sociology major and journalism minor at CC. I'm Abby Williams. I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I'm a rising junior. I'm also a sociology major, and I am a REMS minor. Sweet. Thank you both. I just wanted to start by asking what you two think about the ways in which the narrative of the Roman genocide during World War II has been really hidden. Um, to go with the title of this class, it's, it's a very hidden narrative. And why do you think that happened? And maybe what do you think are some of the consequences of that today? Well, yeah, I can start by saying the first thing that popped into my mind is that um, at some point in this class, we learned about how it took, I think it was today that we learned that it took 20 years for the German government to even recognize the genocide against Sinti and uh, Roma people. Which is actually 37 years. 37 years, yeah. thank you for that. Um, so yeah, that's obviously, obviously very long. And also, obviously, is that the first, the first group of people that were very much like given reparations and, and remembered um, as the victims were Jews. And so that, then what that made me think of is skin color. Um, Jews, and I mean, we know the numbers, we know that it was six million Jews, which is a profoundly horrible amount of people that were victimized um, during the Holocaust, but, but if, it makes sense that in Europe, and it's unfortunate that it makes sense, but in Europe, um, in Germany specifically, which is a very majority white place, and this is in the 1940s, and then I, or I guess up until like the 60s or 70s, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that I, I feel like whiteness played, played a big role in who um, were seen as victims uh, justifiably during the Holocaust. And I think the fact that it did take a really, really, really long time for this memorial to happen, or and the fact that there is still prejudice that's very like alive and well and acknowledged mm -hmm. against Roma and Sinti people shows that there is xenophobia and there is nationalism like alive in Germany. Like maybe it's undercurrents, but like it's still there. So I think that's really interesting to like contend with because I think as a nation, Germany, well, some of Germany has recognized wrongdoings against Jewish people during the Holocaust, but maybe hasn't grappled with wrongdoings and continuing wrong and oppression that's happening today against the Roma people. Yeah, that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the, the very long history of persecution against Roma and Sinti people, um, which can be traced back for centuries uh, throughout their migrations across Europe. And also the fact that after the Paranus and the, and the genocide of Roma 
listen to people here in Germany, the persecution has continued <laughs> um, in very specific ways. So I guess what do you two think about the fact that there's a, a state-implemented or state-created memorial even though this persecution and discrimination by the state has not ended, as in there's police profiling and discrimination in other ways, school segregation of Roma children. What, what do you two think about the, the contrast there between the memorial and the, the reality of today's climate? Go ahead, Anna. Well, we talked about earlier how sometimes memorials, museums, etc., like institutions, or institutionally created things can are mechanisms of opting out of guilt or like bypassing difficult legislation or like tough policy or social change like and I don't want to discredit the memorial because I think it's a really incredible thing and it was so well done but it's the government's not doing the most and I think by creating a memorial, they were kind of like, oh, we're on it, like we're doing it. Yeah, and to add to that, I think it it really does depend on on what the memorials are. So in the case of the of the Roma and Sinti uh, Holocaust Memorial, um, it's not even just for the government, but for the people of Germany, the, the white people, the Christian people, the non-people of color in Germany, because it's it's a serving as this this maybe justification for today's um, you know institutional and systemic violence in many ways that that is put on Sinti and Roma and many other people of color and so it's kind of it's kind of saying no but look it's better now because we have a memorial and obviously we see that in so many other ways but um, this memorial is just just another example of that yeah I totally agree. Um, we also read that one of the ways the reparations have differed between reparations for Jews and reparations for Romans and Jew people has a lot to do with like the building of a nation. So I guess what do you two think about the dynamic between the fact that the Roma people have never really had a nation and the fact that in comparison there is now like a Jewish state in the state of Israel. Like, that's how do we navigate kind of that, that tricky relationship? That's a really interesting yeah. question. I think yes. I like a lot. There's a lot that goes into like a nation in quotes. You can't see the quotes, but I'm making quotes. Yeah. Signs. We, we could do a whole like, yeah, two I hour feel. podcast. Podcast. And especially since both of us is t have taken Emily Schneider's class, but the fact that nomadic people aren't treated as legitimate or aren't don't have the same rights as people who, who like define semi-arbitrary like nation states such as um, Israel which was kind of defined by European powers that be and place of like other nomadic people like the Bedouins like it's so political and so arbitrary that, yeah, I just feel like it's very unjust. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just to respond to that, not, I'm not sure how, how you meant arbitrary, but I do definitely want to push back a little and, and just think about how until that point, until the Holocaust, many Jews were not necessarily nomadic, but they were a people that didn't have right. a, a homeland. Like 
a politicized, explicit homeland. And so after the Holocaust, you know, people realized, <laughs> the world realized, the UN realized we have to, we really need to establish a explicit political homeland, safety area, whatever, for Jews. And I think that, I do really think that that has a lot to do with just the numbers. I think it also has a lot to do with, again, bringing back whiteness and what, you know, Europeans and just the, you know, the people, the UN looks at as who they're prioritizing. Um, which right, and, and I mean, if I can cut you off just for yeah, a second, no, I think please. you're getting at the idea that that material compensation works for people who are within capitalism, and eventually, like Jews were able to kind of fit that role, whereas Roma people have never really fit that role and are instead seen as criminals pretty much throughout all of history. That's kind of how they were targeted was as criminals um, during World War II. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that we still think about. Roma people in terms of like nomadicism because it we learned in the readings and like um, earlier today how some groups have been here for a really really very 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 long time and I think by continuing that language and that narrative we're like enforcing the idea that they're somehow transitory and therefore like not German or like not members of this country or like not ass assimilated again in quotes but yeah, I think it, I think that's also interesting. So, like, to put it in terms of a nation and a people, I think is kind of inherently exclusionary. I don't know. Yeah. So, so you mentioned language, and that's kind of what I want to turn to about the power of oral tradition and language with Roma people, and maybe just how the archive, as an organization, is trying to preserve Roma tradition, Roma language and um, give more visibility, I suppose, to, to the community in that sense. Yeah, um, well, a phrase that really stuck out to me that, that she liked to view this Romani archive space as a living library, that's how she put it, and I, and I really like that. She, you know, she went on to talk about, it. She, she just said how it's for people to come and tell their stories, and something that she talked about kind of throughout is that there's, they, they want to de-emphasize like the the necessity of academic language and, ac and academia as being how people receive knowledge and tell and you know tell people knowledge and give people knowledge so I really appreciate that going you know language and telling stories and you know oral tradition um, is kind of, is is the place that they want the archive to be, and so it's not even necessary, it's not like it's like an explicit archive, but it's a place where stories are told, so it's like a, it's yeah, a living library, I think it's just a really great way to word it. Yeah, that was well said, and I guess just to add on a little bit, I think it serves as a really critical, it serves a really critical community function, just by like sharing those stories, it creates they use the word network a lot. It creates a network, and mm. networks are important. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess one last thing I wanted to mention was maybe like the role of outsiders in this preservation task, because we heard a lot from the staff at the archive that within academia there are so many scholars who are not Roma themselves, and they're instead being 
this use of racialized language that kind of perpetuates stereotypes and and the knowledge that's being generated is not within the Roma community. So what do you two think about kind of that frustrating dynamic in, in academia and how to kind of break that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it again comes down to the question of like, who's speaking for who? And like, I think it's also a question of allyship, like how, how do you balance being an ally or like in what ways can you help uplift the voices of those who need to be heard and not speak in their place and I think it's kind of like an anthropology question that that field's been grappling with a lot like how do you study a people um, without distilling them or centralizing them mm. and like what's the like power dynamic there like you really have to examine all of that so I think a way academia specifically could deal with this if it's important to to know about the people you're living with and like recognize the diversity in your society and like recognize the Roma and Sinti people as like people with a legitimate history but I think you have to put their voice and their knowledge before your own yeah and this conversation I mean that's a really good point, Abby. I think that this kind of is encompassed in what you just said, but we don't want to, and I mean we as people who aren't Roma and Sinti, we don't want to, yeah, like essentialize, like you said, and we don't want to define things. So even like this this question that um, that Anna brought up, it, it's really it, it brought me back to just now when you were when Abby was like, listen. Not all Sinti and Roma people would necessarily define themselves as nomadic. I thought that was really great to like keep us in check because we have to remember who we're talking about. We have to remember that we're we're it's not our job to define other other peoples. It's that's what their job is. They define themselves. So um, I appreciate that, and that that's just what that made me think of. So one other topic that is addressed by the archive and the events that they hold is, is tackling racial profiling. And we reviewed sort of how Roman Sinti people have been profiled in the past. So if we could just discuss maybe the tactics that were used um, during World War II and then how those have changed and just how Roma people are, are targeted based on race and what might be done about that. Um, yeah, good question. We talked, one specific example I clearly remember was how they talked about marriage documents being used as a means to just identify Roma and Sinti people who maybe would not have been identified otherwise. They'd just like look at the last name and be like, oh, of course, like, let's go target these people. Um, and it was the churches, <laughs> that's right, it was the churches that handed over these documents. So that was one specific mode of targeting Roma and Sinti people. Mm -hmm. And even, um, and also just, and we've seen this with so many different races, ethnicities, identities, the, the generalizations and stereotypes that are that are put on a certain people. So even, 
for example, a bad, a, a not good, offensive word used against um, Sinti and Roma people, which had so many connotations with it that came with it, right? So, so stereotypes that that kind of perpetuate keeping people on the margins of society that that make people seem as though they're like criminalizing people. Um, I think that yeah, the, and I, I yeah. So I think that the value of, of stereotyping and generalizing generalizing a whole a whole group and different groups of people um, can really is unfortunately effective and kind of keeps people on the margins of society. Yeah, I think that becomes clear when um, we talk about today that a lot of Roma students and people in the workplace will not say that they are Roma because they are afraid of profiling. Mm -hmm. And to me that's very powerful because if if you're not visibly like from Sinti and Roma communities, then you would rather hide that so that you can avoid all of that mm -hmm. struggle. And so I found that to be really powerful because you kind of have to negate your identity and, and your culture just to get by. So I think it's great that the archive is a space for like, especially female identifying interns to come and like collaborate on projects and feel like they have agency in their own education and um, that they can contribute to preserving their culture without feeling targeted. Um, seems like a very important task for the, the community. I hope that through my and my classmates' reflections on our visit to the Romani Pen Archive here in Berlin, informed you of some of the historical and modern-day struggles affecting the Roma and Sinti communities. I truly believe it fosters empathy to listen closely to the stories of other people who have completely different life experiences than, than we do, and it has certainly contributed to my development as an activist in the struggle for collective liberation. My favorite part is the complexity, knowing that I will never have the right answers to a lot of questions because there is so much nuance to be found within everything. I would like to thank Noah and Abby for participating. I need to thank the band Ask Again, who wrote the song that I used at the beginning of this episode called Only Our Footsteps in the Sand. And of course, thank you to the Romani Pen Archive for having us in their space and telling us their stories. Now please enjoy some sounds from Charles's ukulele, as well as a reading of the poem that can be found at the Memorial to Roma and Sinti Victims. Pallid face, dead eyes, cold lips, silence, a broken heart without breath.